0: You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi, coming up on today's programme. He said, Boris, you you say that uh, Ukraine is, is not going to join NATO anytime soon. He said it in English, anytime soon. What is anytime soon? Details emerge of a conversation Russia's President Vladimir Putin and the UK's former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had, just days before Moscow launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, will have the latest. Also ahead, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his Middle East tour to Israel, overshadowed by a wave of violence. We'll also review the day's newspapers with our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, what do you have for us today?
1: Hello, Marcus. Today we discuss Brazil's problematic census and a record-breaking Hindi film.
0: More from Fernando a bit later. And Monaco's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi will be here to look ahead to the 2023 plans of the fashion giant LVM Age. All that right here on the briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. We begin today's programme with a look at the latest from Ukraine. Russian strikes have continued over the weekend and overnight, prompting President Volodymyr Zelensky to ask for faster weapons supplies from its allies to defend itself. The calls comes as it emerged this morning that Russia's Vladimir Putin had threatened Britain's former Prime Minister Boris Johnson with a missile strike in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm joined on... On the line by James Rogers, Associate Professor of International Journalism at City University of London. He's also the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. I'm also joined by Alona Livko, who is a senior consultant at Atticus Partners and former regional MP in Ukraine. Welcome both to the briefing. Alona, could we start with a wider look at the situation in this conflict? How well is Ukraine coping as Russian strikes continue?
2: Hello, Marcus. Um, the situation is quite difficult, of course. We keep enduring strikes from Russia on a daily basis. Even Kherson, the city that was liberated in the south um, at the end of last year, keeps getting hit by Russian missiles. They keep targeting infrastructure objects and trying to leave people disheartened without any heat and electricity. So the situation is getting quite difficult. Um, Ukrainians have become better in protecting themselves because now every day we get news like out of 50 or 55 missiles uh, that were aiming to target Ukraine. 47, 50 missiles were struck down. So the air defence that we have received from the West is extremely effective and it does help save lives on a daily basis. But the situation is quite difficult and obviously the situation on the front line, which is in the east of the country, is quite dire.
0: Alona, it was just last week Germany and the U.S. agreed to supply Ukraine with tanks. And already this morning, President Zelensky asked for a faster delivery of supplies. What do you think the reaction will be from the Allies, or have we got one already?
2: I hope that all the weapons that were agreed to be sent to Ukraine will be sent ASAP. Of course, it takes logistics, it takes preparation, it just takes pure time to get all the equipment and ammunition into Ukraine physically. So it does take time. That's why Ukraine was urging the partners to complete the negotiations as soon as possible for Germany to finally make up its mind and unlock the thousands of tanks uh, that are now being prepared to get sent to Ukraine, especially the significant amount from Spain of all the countries. We haven't heard much from the country itself on tanks, but now it's preparing over 50 Leopard 2 tanks being sent to Ukraine. Obviously, the same goes for the tanks from the US. We're still expecting the Patriot systems from the US, the Netherlands, and Germany as well. But all of that takes time. So mm-hmm. we do hope that that equipment can get to Ukraine as soon as possible.
0: Obviously, we have been talking about the worry of a possible Ukraine fatigue, that people just get tired of following the news about this conflict. But how much is there concerned that the Western allies may get tired of Ukraine's requests for more help and for more weaponry and for more supplies?
2: Well, in fact, Marcus, I think it's very reassuring to hear that every time we hear a Western leader, be it from the UK, even Germany, Olaf Scholz, or our US partners, um, General Secretary of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, they keep repeating the same thing over and over again, that the West will continue to help Ukraine for as long as it takes. And that's extremely reassuring to hear. Of course, we're facing not an easy winter in the West uh, with cost of living crisis, energy supplies and the crisis on that. So we only hope that the people um, in the West enduring these difficulties will still stay mindful that the Ukrainians are sadly going through much, much worse and more tragic events. And it will only take a little bit more to get through this winter, and then I'm sure the situation will get better.
0: I'm also joined by James Rogers. James, shall we look at some some recent revelations? The UK's former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has revealed that he had a phone call with Russian President Putin right before the invasion began. And in that phone call, Putin, for example, threatened Johnson with a missile strike. Tell us more about that.
3: Well, it's an extraordinary claim, isn't it, Marcus? This has come out uh, in a documentary series about Putin in the West. that's due to be broadcast on the BBC here in the UK, the first part uh, this evening, uh, London time. And in it, um, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson (coughs) excuse me, says that um, during this phone call, as you say, in the run up to the war, um, then President Putin threatened him uh, with a missile strike. Um, In the brief clip that's been made available so far, uh, Mr Johnson talks about um you know discussions about whether Ukraine's going to join NATO this remember is of course you know the stage before the war started uh according to Mr Johnson's uh, account of events um uh, and this was uh, and Mr Johnson was, is seeing at this stage one imagines to uh to try to find out if if war can be averted if there is a negotiation process that could begin that could prevent the Russian invasion from going ahead although at one point you know in, in the clip that the BBC um has made available. Um, You know, Mr. Johnson says that, uh, you know, he senses that uh, that Mr. Putin was playing with him and had no intention, uh, as he says, playing along with my attempts to get him uh, to negotiate. In in other words, he wasn't terribly serious about it. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. I think, firstly, neither the Downing Street, the British Prime Minister's office, um, as account of this telephone call, nor the Kremlin's uh, records this remark, and the Kremlin has also dismissed it very bluntly today as a lie. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a sort of unclear episode, but extraordinary, if true, but an unclear episode in, in the wider information war.
0: Why do you think it is that we so, so rarely get this kind of insights into what it's like holding discussions with Vladimir Putin? And would it actually make the situation somewhat clearer if we knew what exactly those phone calls are like
3: well you do i mean it is standard not the whole thing but it's quite normal between leaders when there's a phone call between heads of state or heads of government that there is what's called a readout or a printout uh, distributed afterwards to the press and of course you know any official high level um uh, contact like this is minuted remember i mean mr johnson does say that mr putin spoke to him used a couple of phrases in english uh, mr johnson doesn't speak russian and mr putin seems to understand quite a lot of english having heard it so much over the years but it's certainly a language which he has very very rarely uh, ever spoken in public so there would definitely have been translators on hand so this would all have been um, recorded and normally this is a matter of transparency i mean my current uh, research project for my next book is taking me to the, the national archives here in the uk and these things are recorded and they're a matter of uh, public record although not always released until sometimes afterwards so um but I, what i do find interesting is that, you know, one could see that Mr Johnson might have chosen not to make this public in the run up to the war when there was still some hope that war could be avoided. Um, but it's a little surprising that we're only just learning about this now. But all that said, let's remember some of the warnings that emerged from the to the mouths of the Kremlin's propagandists and some of their more vitriolic TV shows. Uh, in the months after the war started about possible missile strikes on the western London. And this really, if this threat was made, would be very much in line with that sort of rhetoric too.
0: Alona, just finally, what is your reaction to these revelations by Boris Johnson?
2: I think I agree with James that normally these things would be carefully recorded. But of course, some conversations do happen off the record and some uh threats i'm sure can could have been made on part of uh, president putin and um, it does i i also remember many of the programs dedicated on russian tv about talking turning london into radio active ash etc Um of course they would be denying it now as they do with everything every single blackmail and threat they put out they deny uh, viciously and um, especially considering that it could effectively invoke article 4 of nato charter which is the threat Uh, to security of any country member so they would rush to deny it as soon as they can Um, but we're not surprised and I don't think anyone um, is expecting anything else but blackmail and fear-mongering from Russia at this point.
0: James, Moscow obviously has denied these revelations by Johnson but what do you think is going on behind the scenes in Kremlin? How much irritation is there?
3: About this, I I mean, I think, as I say, considering some of the things that we've heard said, Marcus, over the last almost 12 months, this is probably not the worst of them. As I say, it is in line with some of the propaganda that's been broadcast on Russian state TV. There's no question, I would imagine, that Mr Johnson is a particular figure of irritation for um, the Kremlin, given his very staunch support for uh for ukraine in general and for president zelensky in particular uh you'll note that he's even visited there to express support for mr zelensky since himself leaving office so uh and and i think you know, i'm right in saying that um uh, last year as the war was going on the kremlin gave a list of the countries which it said were the most unfriendly to russia and the united kingdom was the top of it so that i don't think there's any surprise here and i think that um now the Kremlin will dis- dismiss this. Obviously it would have been completely unstatement like, completely undiplomatic if such a remark was actually made. Um but I think uh you know they they will not be surprised at Mr Johnson, having made it, there's very little love lost between, um them um, between the Kremlin administration and the UK and Mr Johnson in particular. Remember, before becoming Prime Minister, he was Foreign Secretary and had run-ins with Russia over th- in that role too. So uh, this this is not uh, not a warm relationship. Let me put it that way,
0: <laughs> James and Alona. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was Alona Livko and James Rogers. It is twelve twelve here in London. Now here is Monaco Sky. To with the days of the new set lines.
4: Thanks, Marcus. At least 28 people have been killed and 150 were injured in an explosion at a mosque in the city of Peshawar in Pakistan. Many of the casualties were police officers who had gathered for noon prayers. No one has yet claimed responsibility for the blast. Israeli troops have killed a Palestinian man just hours before U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was due to arrive for a state visit. The trip has been dominated by growing violence in the West Bank. We'll have much more on this story a bit later in the program. And the German economy unexpectedly shrank in the fourth quarter, according to data released today. It's a sign that Europe's largest economy may be entering a much-predicted recession. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus.
0: Thank you very much, Carlotta. Indeed, let's turn our focus to the Middle East next as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his tour of the region. He'll be visiting Israel and Palestine and was in Egypt yesterday. He is expected to hold his first face-to-face talks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu since the latter returned to power. The visit comes as there is growing violence in the West Bank. Let's get the latest now with Daniel Pellet, Is the managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Welcome to the programme. What's on the agenda?
5: Well, this visit was planned before the latest uptick in violence, um, but this will overshadow their their meeting now. Uh, The current Israeli government is the most right-wing in its history and has made no uh, bones about its aims when it comes to increasing settlement expansion, um, a more hardline um, attitude towards the Palestinians and the the lingering uh, aspirations for for sovereignty um, and in addition that we've seen a a, a a real uptick in in violence as well there was a, a raid in the in, in Jenin a few days ago in which 10 people were killed and there was on Friday night there was an attack at a synagogue in East Jerusalem in which i think seven or eight people were also shot by a Palestinian government.
0: Some of the worst violence in, in years. How how much has that changed the discussion topics? Do you think Blinken had to redraft the list of topics to discuss?
5: Well, as ever, um, when it comes to discussions between Washington and, and Jerusalem, Iran is on the agenda, and especially since Netanyahu is a very, very, very veteran um, opponent of... Um, the peace deal with Iran over the nuclear program and um, will be delighted to do anything he can to see it um, not reemerge. Uh, Ukraine as well. Uh, I think uh, America will be quite happy to see uh, Israel sell you or sell or, or, or provide Ukraine with some um, a missile defense systems, which Israel has avoided doing so up till now since, it, since its delicate relationship with Russia.
0: Looking at this violence thats that we've been seeing in recent days, do you think there is much Blinken can offer to, to, to try to make the situation a bit better, to, to calm down the situation?
5: At this, at this stage, I think the best he can hope for is to prevent any major escalations. We are used to the idea that things are bad in the Middle East and the conflict in the Israeli and Palestinian sort of uh, rolls along with a certain level of violence. But the, this is This is pretty critical. What what Washington would really like to avoid is a a massive resurgence of violence, a confrontation in in Gaza, a huge loss of life. The the Palestinians have withdrawn their security cooperation from Israel in protest at the events in Jenin. At the same time, um, even the the right-wing elements, the extra right-wing elements in the current government, one of their priorities is to make moves that would see um soldiers and and perhaps even civilians immune from prosecution or or legal action if they kill palestinians um increased uh increased kinetic nature on the ground if the israeli army is taking a security role in palestinian towns and cities means more confrontations it means more people dying uh, these situations can very very easily spiral out of control. And although the Israeli public is quite divided on the uh, new government, by no means a consensus that this is the the right way forward. What there is a consensus on is that uh, attacks on Jewish civilians, the idea of of Jewish worshippers being attacked as they leave a synagogue, that unites them in horror and they will back the government uh, taking even more hardline Mm. action.
0: How do Israel and Palestine view the U.S. at the moment? Are there any hopes that Washington could somehow pave the way for more stability in the region?
5: I, I, expectations are extraordinarily low uh, when it comes to... I mean, we talk about stability as a as a euphemism, really. No one is talking apart from in diplomatic statements about the two-state solution anymore. There are no peace talks. There is nothing even approaching a, a peace talk. Blinken um, is going to meet Mahmoud Abbas, who has been uh, head of the Palestinian Authority for an achingly long time. The uh, re- elections for a new leadership, are incredibly overdue. No one has any expectations anymore. So I think it, the, the way Washington will be viewing this um, is as it's, a, it's, it's almost become a, a frozen conflict. The best you can achieve at this point is to avoid uh, a huge deterioration and a huge outbreak of bloodshed.
0: Tell us about the role of Egypt in all this, considering that that's the first place Blinken flew to yesterday.
5: Well, Egypt has had a you know, traditional, uh, very important role as a security guarantee uh, guarantor in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, but things are changing uh, as well. I mean, the, the is- Israeli-Egypt uh, peace deal was supposed to be the absolute linchpin of stability in the Middle East, which is why America is been such a key provider of, of uh, financial aid to to Egypt, but the dynamic has changed. I mean, one of the major accomplishments of uh, Netanyahu's uh, uh, leadership, as he would put it, and indeed one of the one of the Trump uh, part of the Trump legacy are the peace deals that uh, Israel made with uh, with our other Arab states, especially in the Gulf, and. The, the end, really, of the idea that unless there was a peace deal with the Palestinians, Israel would remain, a, would be an international pariah and would not have anywhere to go uh, in terms of Middle East partnerships. That's not been the case at all. Uh, Quiet is in is in Egypt's um, interest as well. The last thing that Cairo wants to see is any escalation uh, in Gaza. The White House seemed to have been briefing about its uh, disquiet with CeCe's uh, human rights record. But one can't really uh, expect any outspoken or uh, dramatic moves on that half, half.
0: As you mentioned already, expectations are very low. Just just looking at this whole tour, what's the best thing Blinken can reach? What's the best thing to happen on this tour?
5: The best thing, I think, is, is to make it uh, clear that... Uh, the the U.S. looks very uh, askance at any major escalations. For instance, what could what what could be? You know, if we're looking at our very very low expectations, the idea that the far right elements in Netanyahu's government will not go up to the Temple Mount, for instance, uh, to pray, uh, which is seen as a as, as a huge flashpoint, and uh, one of them already went up there for a visit uh, to avoid further displays of power like that, that could be seen um, as a win. To get negotiations started on security cooperation with the Palestinians, that would be another major win.
0: Daniel Pellet, thank you very much for joining us today and thanks for your insights. It's 12.21 here in London. You are with The Briefing. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Next, it's time to flick through the day's newspapers. And for that, I'm joined by Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, you've acquired quite a selection of, of newspapers today, and we are starting with the Financial Times. What have you spotted from there? Absolutely. I'll read you the headline. Doubts rise over insane common
1: currency plans. So we're talking about the plans between Brazil and Argentina. Exactly. We discussed this a little bit last week. I said that this would be unlikely to happen. And I think I'm not the only one saying this. Shall we first recap what mm. this expla- exact plan is? So, a common currency has been mentioned. Yes, and the name apparently would be Sur. Uh, and it would be like the euro, basically, and would start with Brazil and Argentina. Uh, you know, it's it would be quite a big deal, actually, Marcus, because I think after the euro would be kind of the largest common currency, if it does happen. But it sounds like no one's really believing that's going it, to happen. It sounds unlikely. And I have to remind that a President Lula from Brazil and Alberto Fernandes is from Argentina. They are allies, and it's been seven years since two, the presidents for, for for the two nations were aligned politically. So there's quite a lot of goodwilling uh, between those two countries. Even Lula said, uh, you know, that hopefully with intelligence, competence, and good sense, eventually uh, both countries can have a common currency. But you know, Marcos. It's, it's saying here in the article, the economies are completely different. Just look at the inflation, inflation numbers. Uh, the annual inflation in Argentina reached 94% when in Brazil is only 5.8%. So it's vastly different. And a lot of kind of business people from both countries, they are very doubtful that this would ever happen. Uh, so and I think the FT is just explaining, you know, with, with some details, the international community
0: is also doubting mm-hmm. that this would happen as well. So a lot of skeptics here has there been any excitement in in your home country of brazil for example what what are people saying about this to be fair not really because i think as as, as because precisely because of the numbers that
1: i just gave you about inflation but, you know, but if it's if they really take this seriously, they, you know, they'll have to readjust. I mean, look what happened in Europe. The economies were very different as well. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that the Italian economy was the same as the German, as the Polish one. So, I guess there would have to be readjustment. Mm. But I don't think there is kind of hunger for, for the two nations to
0: have uh, this currency. No mm. hunger this time. Well, Fernando, here in the UK, uh, I've been filling my papers for census at least mm. two times already. And it's always a really swift operation over here. So... You get that letter, you have to fill in all this information, let them know who you are, how old you are, what your ethnicity is, and so forth, and then like a year later or so, you you get the results and and we get a better picture of what's happening in this country and who live here. And Brazil is doing the same thing, but it seems to be a less swift operation. Very problematic one. The main story of started de
1: São Paulo today. And first of all, Marcos, I don't know how it works in other countries, but the Brazilian census someone literally will knock on your door and ask information uh, about you and everything. And, and actually that's one of the reasons uh, why they say there's been so many delays, especially wealthier families in Brazil. They they're, don't want to open the door? No, they're, they're very wary. And and there's a funny thing, you might relate to that one. Uh, you know, the main story was was a man saying that actually he had to go to a sauna of one of the buildings. Uh, it was quite a well-off uh, building in Sao Paulo because nobody was answering. And then he was chit-chatting with the residents in the sauna. And then he got information for the census. But that's, that's just an example of, of the things that are
0: having to happen. I have uh, so many questions about yeah. this story now, Fernando. So... <laughs> Why don't you just send a letter to all these households and to just tell them that it's... Comp- Compulsory to just feel them and I mean, return them. I think. You Why know, do you th- need to go to people's saunas? Yeah, they need to go to people's saunas and residences. I mean, I guess that's. I mean, how if you go to a sauna and you have chatter with people, how reliable is that information <laughs> you finally get?
1: I mean, it, it, that's a very interesting question, Marcus. And actually, I'll do a lot of research now because I didn't know actually that in the UK it was just a letter. Mm. Because in Brazil, you need actually someone visiting the, the house. Does
0: the Pacheco household open the door in Brazil then when the census time comes? You know, I would open.
1: I would definitely open because I love a good senses, as our producer Carlotta loves that as well. Do you have a sword? We don't have a son, unfortunately, so I don't know how <laughs> we'll be able to give. But, Marcus, there's another problem, actually, with the census. They're struggling to find people that will actually work for the census. That was a wonder. <laughs> well, because they're low paid. Uh, and, actually, the employment numbers in Brazil, they're very healthy at the moment. So, you know, they're saying, why would I do the census if I'm not paid enough? And I'll probably have to visit people's saunas to get the information I need. So And, Fernando, when do, you, when do we get the results? I can't wait. <laughs> well, the results were supposed to be in in October, we don't know actually the timetable. We, we have a delay and, and that's really problematic because how many people live in Brazil? I mean, it's expected there will be 207 million, but this affect the funding the cities will get and, and other details. So I hopefully they will be a little bit swift uh, on that one as well. Just one more news story quickly. This is actually mm. something about an Indian film. Indian film doing extremely well. It's on Deadline, uh, which is a Hollywood publication about box office and other things. I mean, Records 61.3 million dollars globally in the weekend is the biggest opening for a Bollywood film. And I think, Marcus, the most interesting thing here that it didn't do well only in India. Uh, in the UK and the US was uh, the highest opening for an Indian film as well. You know, I genuinely think Bollywood is certainly going global. I know it's not a new thing, but I think f- for certain countries it will start competing with, with local films. I think that's a great thing. Great music as well. We've heard on the Global Countdown last week some some really interesting tracks from this film as well. Have you booked your flights
0: to India yet? Yes, and to watch Patan as well. Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. Thank you very much. You are with The Briefing.
2: Monaco's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead from a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
0: Finally today news from the fashion and luxury sector joining me in the studio is Monaco's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi. Good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon, Marcus.
0: So we have news about LVMH and also of Sweden's fashion giant H and M. Shall we start with the latter? Some some results have been announced.
4: Exactly, and very different results. We saw with H H&M and A very dramatic drop in their revenues of sixty eight percent drop in net profits it's still um, a sizable business they made $349 in revenues but I think this huge drop shows how the market is shifting away from fast fashion and also H&M is a business that was really reliant in manufacturing in the Far East so supply chain issues rising costs have really hit them and and so did um, having to exit their Russia business um, there are other uh, competitors like Inditex, which have been investing in manufacturing closer to home in Spain, and also upping the quality of their product, that have actually been growing dramatically this year. But H&M and I think lower quality manufacturing and product is is now not really speaking to consumers anymore, and it it translates in in their revenues.
0: Tough times for H&M, but. LVMH, a great result.
4: Exactly the opposite from what H&M has been seeing. Uh, For 2022, LVMH made 79.2 billion euros. And it's a profitable business. So 22, uh, 21 billion was profit within that. And that was 23% up from from last year, despite them having to close all their stores in Russia, despite the, the inflation, rising costs, and even Chinese tourists not coming back to Europe How yet. did
0: they do that?
4: You know, I'm always, I've been surprised myself all year looking at their results, but I think it's, it shows a really a return of up of the appetite for heritage brands like their brands which are Dior, Louis Vuitton, Celine there's been a, a real appetite for heritage brands timeless familiar names and also despite the conditions of the market they haven't been uh, they have they they've dared to make statements opening really large retail stores investing in craft in manufacturing and uh, hiring the best designers in the world to to um, direct those those labels
0: very good times what does the reopening of china mean for lvmh
4: i think even further growth they have been seeing a lot of growth in the us japan and europe but they are bracing for Chinese tourists to return back to Europe and also um, the domestic business in China will get stronger as, as the country reopens. So there's even more growth and a lot of plans to leverage all of that they have plans to open more stores they have a huge hotel a Louis Vuitton hotel in Paris and um, new CEOs at the helms of their two highest earning labels uh, Pietro Beccari who has been leading Dior has now gone uh, to, LVM, to, to Louis Vuitton and Delphine Arnaud is now at the helm of Dior so I think we'll see even bigger retail projects more growth and exciting collections from LVM
0: what are you looking forward to most when it comes to LVMH and 2023?
4: I'm really looking forward to seeing what will happen at Louis Vuitton. I Pietro Beccari is really a visionary leader who tripled the market share of Dior in the last few years even in the midst of the pandemic so I really want to see who he's going to hire as menswear creative director and how he's going to play out the, the big uh, hotel and retail projects for Louis Vuitton
0: Exciting times Markle's fashion editor Natalie Theodorsi there thank you very much and that's all for this edition of The Briefing it was produced by Carla Rebello researched by André Nicolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Adam Heaton I am Mark. Was Goodbye and
3: thanks for listening.